Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. In the last bit, we've been doing this sermon series, um, Divine Narrative. And so we're going to take a three-week break because we really want to start preparing ourselves for Easter coming up. Um, so I'm going to do a message on Passover here uh, this morning, and we're in Palm Sunday, and then Gary's going to preach on, at, on Easter and so, and then after Easter is over, um, our first sermon series, we actually slow the divine narrative down. We've been taking like big chunks of scripture and moving pretty quickly through them. And so we thought we'd slow it down a little bit and talk about the Israelites wandering in the desert. And so we're taking some time there and spend some time in those stories. And Kelly's actually going to kick off that, um, that wandering series when he comes and preaches. But for these next three weeks... We're going to have just a time of maybe pausing for a little bit, having a time of remembrance that Easter is coming up. I think Easter, Easter is interesting because we have this day that remember that Christ rose from the dead, that he defeated death, that death and darkness and sin does not have the last say in this world. And so there's a celebration of life that's there, that our God isn't dead, our God is alive that Jesus is up in heaven, and someday we also get to partner and eat dinner with him up there. But then we have this other side that we back up. We have like Good Friday, that Christ did die for us. So we have this celebration and this time of sorrow too, that Jesus who we love, that we care about, that chose to die in a tremendous and horrible death. Because in some ways, it's because of us. Like, we were part of humanity. Like it says, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. That because of us and what we've done, that Christ chose, because he loves us so much, to die for us and endure that suffering. And maybe in these next three weeks, we can do is kind of maybe take some time for self-reflection. On that Thursday before Easter, we're going to do a, like a special communion service as worship. And it might be a good moment there. But sometimes, like, we look in our lives and we're like, oh, man, am I good enough? Like, I see the sin in my life and it's hard to change. I know I accepted Christ and went across my life. I got baptized. But this life I'm living right now, it's like, it just does not seem right. We need to remember sometimes, like, we have a Savior that saved us. That Easter, that Christ rose. Remember that we are saved. But there are times maybe in our lives that we get complacent. We let years and years kind of go by. We forget that we do need a Savior in our life. That we need to release control and maybe trust God in the direction that God has for us. Remind ourselves of like, okay, I have fallen short. I don't have it all together. I do need a savior. So we need to remember that Good Friday, that Christ died for us. Because we all need him. We all need his redemption. And so can we walk over the next three weeks in peace of, okay, where am I at right in my life? What do I need to reflect on a little bit? Am I caught up in guilt and shame? I need to remember that I'm saved. Have I walked away from God a little bit? Maybe because I do my own thing. I don't spend much time with him. 
that I recognize I do need a savior in my life. So this morning I'm going to talk about Passover. So Passover is this time that the Jewish people, they celebrate every year. And so one reason why I want to talk about it, because Jesus is last week, was in Jerusalem because of Passover. So Passover comes from what kind of Gary talked about in the, like, for about part of Moses, is that the last plague, the plague where the firstborn was going to be killed, and so God gave them instructions of what to do that night so that God would pass over their homes and their firstborn son would be saved. And so I'm going to read out of... Uh, Exodus 12 here. So tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share it with their nearest neighbor. Having taken it into account the number of people there are, you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be a year old males without defect, and you may take them from them the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of their houses, where they eat the lamb. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with the bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head and legs and internal organs. Do not leave any of it until morning. If some of it is left until morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all of the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is the day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. So God leaves this right saying that this is something you should keep celebrating over and over which is a hard piece a little bit, like this kind of terrible plague that pass over the, these, the ones that the houses that God doesn't pass over, the firstborn of the house is killed, the firstborn of that family is killed. But we already start seeing the images of Christ being brought up in scripture. So this lamb, this lamb was without defect. This lamb that is the idea of, I would say, without, with Jesus, the lamb that was without sin, the lamb that is pure. So one of my beliefs is that God steps into our culture. He steps into our time frame. And I could go for a few other stories, but when this period of time, when, Jesus, or when God says to the Israelites to sacrifice this lamb and put it on the door from your house, it's not unusual. They didn't go like, oh, really? You want me to kill this thing and then put his blood on? I don't know about this. Because they would recognize it as something that the other people in Egypt did to their other gods, is like when they got a new home, a new house, what they would do, they'd sacrifice an animal to their god and put the blood on the doorframe of their house because what they wanted was that god's protection of their house. So the Israelites knew what God was doing here. He knew, they knew that like, this was a sign of protection, that because of this innocent lamb, this 
blameless, without defect lamb that was killed and slaughtered, that its blood would protect them. Like with Jesus later on, this innocent man, without blame, without defect, his blood was put onto a cross to protect us. One thing I like looking about the idea of Passover is the Israelites, because they're supposed to celebrate this every year, certain time of the year they're supposed to celebrate it. But think about their lives, the generations that would celebrate this. Because at times, things were good. Like times through like David and Solomon, that things were good. Like it seems like the nation was following God. Things were on the right path. People had plenty. They had enough. But he also looked at times where things weren't good. So you had when they were in exile in Babylon. Or the Romans were occupying them at the time of Jesus. Or everything about like later in, in Jewish people's lives. Like World War II and concentration camps. Think of when they took Passover during that time, what that meant for them. This idea of remembering that God took them out of slavery and took them out of bondage. And so, let me go ahead and read here in Matthew 26. So on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. So it was commanded that the, all of the men around Jerusalem, around the area, had to go to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. It was a time of celebration. It was a remembrance that God saved them and took them out of slavery, it took them out of bondage. And so Passover took a period of time, part of his unleavened bread, where they take all the yeast out of their house. So all the yeast was used to make the bread that rise, that was all taken out. And so part of the Passover was also Passover meal, which is what we call like a Seder meal. If, you ever, if you've never done a Seder meal, I would suggest, if you've ever been asked to do one, be a part of it. It's meaningful, it's deep, um, and it's not short. It takes a while, a couple of hours usually. But there's so much to it. And recognizing that like, this is something that people have sat and done for so long. It might have changed over time. And even how maybe the first Israelites celebrated Passover to where Jesus celebrated Passover, there's probably changes that were made a little bit. But there's a lot of components that have always been the same. But if we think of the Passover, we kind of maybe get this image. Leonardo da Vinci. So these nice group of maybe uh, two people that are a little bit too white, a little too pale, looking a bit too much like me. Um, and in the background, it's still daylight. Passover happened at night. It was not daylight. And then they had this table, this long table that was spread out. Um, it did not look like this. So what it might have more looked is like this. And so a table that's like U-shaped. And so they would lay down as they eat Passover. So there's probably maybe hopefully some cushions they would lean on. And so they lean on their right, or sorry, the left hand and left hip. And so because they would use their right hand to dip and eat the meal with, so you, it's like a shared meal with the people around you. 
One reason is that you know, like they use the right hand. That's why they are leaning that way, is because your right hand's clean, your left hand is not clean. It's not like they had toilet paper back in the day, and not a lot of good places to wash your hands. I spent a little time in、um, India, and so the same thing happened there. Like you did never touch your face with your left hand. We're at a,、uh, a dinner at a restaurant with some people, and one of my friends. If you ever try to break bread non with one hand, it's quite hard to do. So she reached up and pulled it apart. The look she got from some people hilarious. They're like just disgusted. Like why are you touching something with your left hand? That's not right. And so these meals. So everybody would be on their left hand, left side, and then they would eat and dip loosely with something like a bread in their meal. With the right hand, <clears throat> and so the question is a little bit of: Can we get an image of what it looked like for the Last Supper? So, if you bring up the next image here, so what we do, what we have is this U-shaped spot. Oh, that's really bright. And、um, so, what we know that there's certain places that people would have that we knew. So, we have a host, the place of first honor, second honor, and chief servant. That's kind of like what we know.、And、so, the question is: Okay. Can we know through a scripture of maybe what it looked like for when the disciples ate this, where people were at? So one place we know is where Jesus was at. So the place, the teacher, the person in highest regard would be the host. So Jesus would be the host there. So and Jesus also would be the one that told people where to sit, from the greatest to the least. He would tell people where to go. And so through scripture, we can really get the idea of actually using the first honor, second honor, and chief servant. So. Out of John, we get the idea of using second honor. So in John thirteen twenty three, John writes, "Lying back on Jesus' chest was one of his disciples whom Jesus loved." Also, love the fact that John wrote that he, this is the one that Jesus has loved. He's writing about himself, like, "Hey, remember how much Jesus loved me?" Yeah. And so, if they're on their left hand and their left hip and leaning back, who would John be leaning back into, or leaning back into Jesus? So that put him. Go ahead and bring the image up into the sea of second honor. So we have Jesus and John. And so maybe you think throughout your idea of who the disciples were. So there's twelve of them, and some of them are much more known than others. So one of them would be Peter. Like where would you put Peter at? Because you think like Peter is like probably the oldest of the disciples. Remember the disciples were young, like. Fourteen, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen—they're all pretty, very, pretty young men. So Peter was the one that was always known for being like the first to answer, put his foot in his mouth a lot. But he was the one that was there for Jesus, always right there. So okay, where should Peter be? And so Simon Peter, this is John writing, motioned to the disciples. Oh, back up for a second. Finish this verse. So he motioned to his disciples and said, "Ask him which he means." So Simon Peter mentioned,、uh, motioned to John. So as everybody's lining around this U-shaped table, and so he motioned to John. Probably what meant that Simon Peter was actually on the very end, the place of chief servant. It seems like a very odd place for Peter to be. The least among the disciples, the one that would probably end up in this case be the one that served everybody and got them the food and put it out. He would do all the the work of maybe the what could be have been the servant. Now this is where 
Peter was at. This is also the, the guy that later on, when Jesus, after he, after he rose from the dead, would go, this is the person I'm going to build my church on. Like, I wonder a piece if Peter recognizes this. For me to be more like Christ is for me to be put in the last seat. And we get this later on in this, this dinner. Because what does Jesus do? He gets up and he washes all the disciples' feet. That was a job of a, maybe a servant, probably a servant, the least, the least person in the room. That would be their job. So if no one else in the room, it would have been Peter's job. Like Peter is the one that should have been washing everybody's feet. But Jesus continues to show his character. He always serves. And you think of that being stuck in your image of your, in your head as one of the disciples. He's like, yes, Jesus put me here at the end. But that's how I should lead. If I'm going to lead like Jesus, I'm going to serve others. And it's not a bad place to be. Like we all want like the seat of first honor, second honor. But if we're going to be more like Christ, we're going to be a place at the very end like where Peter is. And so now the next question is, okay, who's the person at the seat of first honor? So we can understand that from this passage here. So... John talking again, leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So he took a piece of bread. And it's interesting to know that whatever is going on here, the disciples really didn't get an idea of like, that Judas was the one they betray. It's actually pretty shocking it was Judas, the one that betrayed Jesus. But he took a piece of bread, this unleavened bread, and dipped it into this dish. And Judas knew that Jesus knew that Jesus was going to betray him. And Jesus still put Judas at the seat of first honor. Would you do that? Like, if I knew someone was going to betray me, I'm like, okay, at least last seat, probably out the door. Like, get out of here. But it's not who Jesus is. And I think it's a good remembrance for ourselves that we do fail Christ, that we do fall short, we miss the mark. But Jesus still cares about us. And think of all that time that Jesus spent with Judas. They walked from city to city together. They ate meals together. They probably laughed together. They cried together. Like, Jesus spent a ton of time with his friend. His friend that was going to betray him. In the midst of him betraying him, he still recognized him. still cared about him. If you think you're far from Christ because of things that you have done or you're doing in your life, you're wrong that Jesus still cares about you in the midst of all of that. So this is kind of maybe like, if you, I'm, I'm very image-driven. Like I like to know like what things look like in my head. And so I can think about this U-shaped table and this meal going on. So this meal took two, three, four hours to do. So if you look through like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, especially those three, like it's a very short part of 
the scriptures. But it was a long time. And so what we'd also recognize is that there's other elements going on throughout the Passover meal, throughout the Seder meal. And so one of those kind of key pieces is some cups. So I'm going to read out of uh, Exodus 6, 6 through 7. So therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And so I will free you from the being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you from the, under the yoke of the Egyptians. Go ahead and go to the next slide. So during the Passover meal, so probably during that time, they actually only had like one cup. They sipped four times. Um, but later on, they adapted it to have four different cups. I'm going to use the idea of four cups. It's easier for me to remember. And so they had... Go ahead and bring up the next slide here. And so through that passage, what they would do, they would have the cups and remember pieces of that passage through the, the Passover meal. So you'd have two of the cups before you serve the, the meal, the lamb, and then you have two cups afterwards. And so the first two cups are this, I will take you out and I will free you. So during this, Jesus would stop because he was a host. So he would take the cup, he would bless it, and they remember it is, I will take you out. So if you think of like this, like let's say a drug addict. So the idea that God would take the person out from the area they're stuck in, out from that community of drug addicts. That God took the Israelites out of slavery. So he took them out of the place that they were. And so the next cup, the next sip they would take would be the idea, I will free you. So not only will I take you out of the place where you're in bondage, but I will take like, the slavery out of you. So for that drug addict, the idea would be, not only am I going to take you from that community, I'm going to free you from your addiction. So just think of like when the Israelites remember this, that their ancestors, their people that God took out. And so the next part is that they have the lamb. And so what, what we know apart, it's like when you look through the scriptures, you really only see maybe two cups being used. But their culture, they're to stand there. There are these four cups. And so the next cup, the third cup, is actually a very important cup. Because this is the cup that Jesus uses when he talks about this new covenant. He talks about his blood poured out for you. Go ahead and bring that verse up. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So this third cup, cup of redemption, this is the one that Jesus chooses to make this new covenant. So he looks at the covenant of Abraham and Isaac, Moses and Noah, and wraps them into this one piece, this one cup. Why this one cup? Like, I will redeem you. Because I think we all need to hear that part of it. Because at the end of the day, can we actually redeem ourselves? No. If I do my own ways, I keep making things worse. I recognize that. But Jesus took that cup. It's like, this is my blood poured out for you. 
Like, it's good to remember that's poured out. There's a new covenant. And so when you think through this time period, meeting with his disciples, and they would not have, like, this is something new being said. This is not a normal Passover saying. That something new is happening here. Later at the end of service, we're going to take communion together. So my hope is when you look at that cup, look at it as a cup of redemption. That God loved you enough to pour his blood out to redeem you, to make the good, or is it the bad, and make it good. To take what was wrong and to make it right. And so in that passage at the very end of it, he says something that's unusual. He's like, okay, I'll not drink from another cup. But everybody knows that there's four cups. There's four sips. There's one more cup that he's supposed to do. The last part is like, I will take you. And it's a language of like marriage. So I will take you. I will make you mine. You will be my people. I will protect you. This fourth cup is a cup of protection. And Jesus says, I won't drink it. Because when the Israelites left Egypt, they had the Pharaoh, Pharaoh was chasing them, they had Red Sea in front of them, they needed a protector. But Jesus in front of his disciples, like, I will not ask God, ask God to protect me tonight. Like, think of like the, the disciples looking back at that moment of, oh, now I understand what Jesus did. There's a reason why he did not drink from that cup. Because he says, I won't let God protect me. Because in Egypt, when God went over the houses that didn't have the blood, it was the firstborns of the families that died. But Jesus is like, I will not drink from that cup. I will be the firstborn. Jesus is the firstborn of God. He's going to die instead. We have a few other elements of that meal. So you have major three elements. So you have unleavened bread, you have bitter herbs, and you have the lamb. So when, so when we talk about the idea that Jesus broke a piece of bread, so he took a piece of unleavened bread, no yeast to it, didn't rise. And so if you look through the Old Testament, usually what yeast kind of symbolizes was sin. So it's bread without sin. So we talked about his body that was broken, his body that is pure, his body that was out sin, was like broken for you. And then we have as a part of the passage of, or the other part of the element of like bitter herbs. So the bitter herbs would be there to symbolize the bitterness of slavery, the bitterness of bondage. That we were supposed to remember that. So we think about Judas, remembering what I think God was trying to say in some ways, is that it's not necessarily the bondage of slavery that we're going to remember. It's the bondage of our own selves, our own sins, our own flesh. I don't think it's a very much of a stretch that Jesus was talking about more than just the bondage of slavery. And everybody think, think about the whole that, that night across Jerusalem, all these other Jewish people were taking the Passover meal. And when they dipped into the bitterness and the bondage of slavery, what were they thinking about? The Roman Empire 
Like, oh, what would it be for us not to be underneath the Roman Empire anymore? And Jesus was with his disciples saying, what about the idea of not being bonded to your sin? Because God made covenants with people all along, and we did not fulfill them. God always fulfilled his side of the covenant, even when we messed up. So even the idea of like at one point in your life, you're like, I was said, Jesus, my Lord, I was baptized. But you're human. I think there's probably no one perfect in here. If you are, please change places with me because I am not. You're all stuck in that bondage. Bondage to own sin. But Jesus, even the knowing the idea that we had this moment of where we, we were saved, that he continues to save us along the way. I like the word sanctification. This idea of the process of being saved, that we were saved, but we're in the process of also being saved. We're in the process of having freedom in our life. But we get that freedom by turning towards Christ, not trying to do it on our own, not trying to like, well, once I solve this thing, then Jesus will love me more. No, Jesus loves you more already in the midst of that thing and wants to walk with you through it because he's the one that redeems. He's the one that gives you hope. Like you turn towards him first. And so at the end of the meal, Jesus goes with his disciples to Gethsemane. This gar- we call it Gethsemane Garden. It was probably like an olive grove with a place where they did the, the olive press and stuff like that. And so go ahead and bring that passage up. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled, and he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but, you, but as you will. During this night, it was actually kind of known for people to go out and watch. It's actually called the night of watching. It's the idea when the Israelites were in their homes waiting to see if the Lord would kill their firstborn or not. Is the idea of waiting and watching. So this is pretty normal for people to go out in the middle of this night after this long meal and pray and watch and wait for God, what God's going to do. But he says this thing about, take this cup we already knew he's not going to drink the cup of protection. So what cup is he talking about to take from and put a sip on? And so there is this other cup mentioned in the scriptures, mentioned in um, Jeremiah, in the Psalms. So I'm going to read out of Jeremiah here. So this is what the Lord said, the God of Israel said to me, take from me my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make it all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom he sent me drink it. So the fifth cup, so all these rabbis argued for like, should this cup be part of Passover? How should it be? No one came to agreement. And so what they also call it Elijah's cup, because when Elijah comes back, then he'll tell us what to do with this cup. This is the cup, the fifth cup. 
Jesus is referring to, the cup of wrath. Because in Jeremiah, it's all the other nations that drink from this cup. The wrath that we all deserve. Because we keep messing this whole thing up. Instead, Jesus took the cup and drank it. He drank all of it, but there's no drips left. So the wrath that you think you deserve has already been taken. The cup is empty. He did all of it. That moment on the cross, he took all the wrath. And I don't want to glance over it lightly. The idea that God of the universe set his son to die because he thinks that you have worth and value, that your life has meaning to it. He would not redeem you if you thought you were worthless. You don't take something and make it better because you don't think you can actually make it better. That God actually cared about you. It says, like, hey, you are enough. Let me show you how much I love you and how, much, how valuable you are to me. By all, take the wrath that you probably deserve. I think in our lives that we need to hear that. With everything going on in your life, to remember that he already did it. He already took it. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.